Today, uh, as a preacher, I'm uh, given lots of very difficult choices on what to preach on, right? Should I be talking about how I hate those that hate God, or should I be talking about uh, giving up all your possessions and hating your parents, or should I be talking about how God will bring destruction and, and, and crush a, a clay pot that's not working well? Well, today I'm going to continue, though, on what I said last week, which is that I intend over the next few weeks to be talking about the prophet Jeremiah. That's the first reading we had. Uh, and so over uh, the next few weeks, I'll continue for two more weeks on this to keep on that same theme of what Jeremiah is speaking to, because Jeremiah is a very difficult book. The gospel passages are very difficult as well. But I think we're a little bit more familiar with the gospels. And sometimes it's worthwhile looking at other parts of the Bible to really help ourselves be more familiar with the way that God speaks in diverse ways to diverse people and places. I'd like to continue in what I was saying last week about Jeremiah, but for many of you who may not have been here to hear me introduce what I wanted to say, I'd like to speak to you first before we get into the meat of the passage today on Jeremiah 18 about who Jeremiah is and, and what his general gist and what the thrust of his preaching is all about. First thing to understand about Jeremiah is he probably lived about 600 years before Jesus, so 2,600 or so years before us today. And Jeremiah was what's known as a prophet. And many of us in, in common language now today will understand what a prophet is. But, of course, a prophet in, in the Old Testament and throughout the Bible in general was a very special kind of ministry. A prophet was a person who, like a preacher, would, would preach and speak about what they believe God wants people to do. But unlike me, who relies on, on tools to, to read the scriptures and, and senses and from my knowledge of God uh, and, and tries to preach from that, the prophets had a miraculous kind of element to them, which is not only do they walk with God and know him, but God often gives them direct speech and tells them, you need to go and say these things to people. And these prophets throughout Israel's history are particularly important because God uses the prophets as a way of speaking particularly towards the powerful, towards kings, towards priests and people in the temple and religious community, and directing them away from wrong paths and towards good ones. But of course, we all know that when we hear somebody criticizing the path we're walking on, we aren't always open to that. And so prophets in general often had a difficult time, A, getting heard, and sometimes even more difficult in that they were persecuted for what they said. As I mentioned last week, Jeremiah is often known as the weeping prophet because Jeremiah, at that period of Israel's history, is in not only a very tumultuous and difficult part of Israel's history, he is also at a time where Israel's kingdom is effectively coming to an end. Some of you may have story, the story of David uh, and how David slew Goliath and then God made him king. Well, throughout Judah, the southern part of Israel, for centuries, his descendants continued to be king on the throne. It's called the Davidic dynasty. In Jeremiah's time, he's predicting that the Davidic dynasty is coming to an end. He's talked to them. He's preached to them about how it is they've strayed far away from God. They've oppressed the poor. They've made war. The judges accept bribes. They worship idols. They've even sacrificed their own children to bloodthirsty idols. And Jeremiah says, you know, you, you've not listened. You've not listened after generation after generation. And the consequences of all your actions are now going to be coming home. You have an opportunity for repentance. God will, will protect you and preserve a remnant. But at the same time, there are consequences to what you've done, and the chickens are coming home to roost, and you will face some real challenges now because your kingdom will come to an end, and nobody wants to listen. Jeremiah is a difficult passage because Jeremiah nobody listens to, but also because Jeremiah says that the consequences will be severe. Now, it's important for us to know because when we get into the passage today of Jeremiah 18 and the imagery that Jeremiah uses, 
It really tells us a lot about what Jeremiah's ministry in general was to the people of Israel. Because Jeremiah here presents what's known as an enacted parable. A parable is a story that has a a moral point to it. So Jesus often tells parables. Maybe you know the story of the Good Samaritan, and Jesus says a man is walking from Jerusalem down to Jericho and falls into the hands of robbers and is beaten up and left for dead. It's a story that's meant to show us a point, which is a Good Samaritan comes along and helps this stranger, and it tells us something about our duty to our neighbor, even if they're different than us. An enacted parable is similar to that, but it takes a physical action or a physical thing so that the person enacts it or acts it out to make that point even more clear. We do this all the time with children's illustrations for for children's talk in church, right? I can remember a few years ago when I was in my last parish, the youth leader was giving a talk, and she was talking about gossip, I think. And so she took uh, the children in front and grabbed out a tube of toothpaste. She took off the lid and squirted it out. And then she said, you know, gossip's like this. And and the the tube goes and squirts out the, the, the toothpaste, and she says to the kids, now put it back in the tube. And of course, they couldn't. And they knew from that frustration, well, gossip's like this. Once you've spread something out, it can just go around all over the place, and you can't put it back where it came from, so be careful what you say. And I think that really stuck with me as well as the kids, because people who are visual learners see that, and it just has this visceral thing that sometimes just mere words don't. So what happens here with Jeremiah? Let's read to what Jeremiah is saying in verse 18, what he's saying to Israel, and then I'm going to move on to what I think this says to us. Verse 2 of chapter 18 in Jeremiah. Come, go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I, Jeremiah, went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as seemed good to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done, says the Lord? Just like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. O house of Israel, at one moment I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down or destroy it, but if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster I intended to bring on it. He's saying to Jeremiah, this is a lesson that I want you to bring to Israel. I am the potter. You, Israel, were a nation of no great power or, or note in this world when I chose you. The book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, tells us about Israel's great ancestor, Abraham, and how Abraham was just a a shepherd wandering around with his flocks in the Middle East. God speaks to him and says, Abraham, I have some tasks for you. I'm your God. I want you to go to Israel. And and he makes a covenant with Abraham, and and he brings uh, Abraham to the promised land, and he tells Abraham that your descendants will number like the stars, and you will be a blessing to the nations. And Abraham believes him, and we're told that that makes Abraham righteous. But Abraham's nothing special. God doesn't go and visit the Pharaoh, who's the, the, the king of a mighty nation. He visits a nobody. Then what happens uh, hundreds of years later when Israel has, has multiplied? It's a big nation, but they're a nation of slaves living in Egypt. And God goes to them and says, I know nobody cares about you. You're slaves. Everybody thinks you're just things, not people. But you're people. You're made in my image. You're my people. And so he leads them out of there, and he brings them to the promised land, and he continues to preach to them and speak to them. You exist, Israel. You continue to exist hundreds and hundreds of years after Abraham because of what I have done for you. I am the potter, and you are the clay. This clay is you, and I, the potter, am the one who who actually took the clay out of the earth, put it on the potter's wheel, and started shaping it. God says, 
I am the potter, but every time I try to make you into the image that I want you to be, you keep shifting and that image keeps getting broken. I want to make something. And so what does a potter do when he's making something and it's on the wheel and it isn't right? He shapes it again and sometimes gently. And if it keeps being malformed, he starts from scratch and he remakes it into something quite different. Jeremiah is saying to Israel, look, I made you to do something. God made you to do something. You were made to be a light to the world. The world is supposed to look at you and say, there is a nation of priests of Yahweh, of, of the God of heaven and earth. They're supposed to look to you and they see, wow, what a, a just nation, because they serve a just God. Wow, what a merciful nation, because they care for their poor, because God is a merciful and loving God who cares for the poor. What a faithful nation, because they worship their God and they don't move to idols. And yet, what does Jeremiah see? What do all the prophets keep saying? Kings are not just. Instead, the kings of Israel again and again, and all those in leadership take bribes. They favor the rich over the poor. They, they play favorites, and, and they don't be just. Or that he looks to not only the, the kings, he looks to the, towards the people who are poor. And, and you look at the landowners and the people who are supposed to be a sense of responsibility for the poor. Instead, they simply tax them and take things from them and don't treat them well. And of course, they see again and again them worshiping idols instead of God, even sacrificing their own children. I made you to be something that fulfills my purpose to show the world what I am like. And you have failed at this again and again, Israel. So be prepared. The hands of the potter are going to have to reshape you and it's going to be painful. And it was. But of course, if you read a little bit further, spoiler alert, Israel is taken and uh, Jerusalem is destroyed by Babylon, but they aren't removed. They aren't wiped off the face of the earth. Israel is brought into captivity in Babylon. And roughly 70 years later, a couple of generations later, God miraculously brings them back. But you know what happens in the meantime? It's not that Israel becomes perfect and always treats the poor well. We often see Jesus speaking hundreds of years later about the treatment of the poor. But one thing it did for Israel is, is that it cured its idolatry. What we hear right after this is that although they had worshipped idols right into the moment of their destruction, when they came back, idolatry was off the menu. And at least for that, that's one thing that seriously changed. Now, that's all great. I mean, we can look at that and say, interesting historical notes. And next time I'm on Jeopardy, I can use those whenever that category comes up. But of course, the Bible is not a sort of book full of trivia and interesting historical details. What it is instead is a living word. God speaks to us through it. We need to be aware of its original context. But of course, the one who ultimately moved the prophets to speak is the Holy Spirit who still moves in us today. And we need to hear what the Spirit is saying to us. I think that when we look at these passages, it's deeply important to recognize that not only is God speaking as the potter shaping the clay of Israel, I believe that he's speaking about God who is uh, the potter shaping the clay of the church, and ultimately God who is the potter shaping the clay of you and me. And after all, it's probably not a coincidence that God uses this imagery in the prophets of clay because in Genesis, we hear that story of how the first humans are made. God takes the clay of the earth, shapes it, breathes into it, and human life is brought about. So keep in mind, this is a message that I think speaks to us. So I'd like to give three points about what's really important as take-homes, I think, for this, and hopefully something that not only challenges, but in the end gives us encouragement about God's grace. Here's the first challenge, and actually something that I think is a little harder for us than it was for ancient Israel. The first challenge is to recognize God has the power and the authority to shape his clay as he wishes. And that means God has the power and the authority to shape his church 
and to shape us as people as he wishes as well. Listen again to the way that um, God speaks when he calls Jeremiah to look at the potter. He says, Can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done? Just like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, a house of Israel. Israel did not want to hear that. People like to be their own boss. They don't like to be told what to do. But I'd like to suggest that our generation finds it even harder than Israel. Because pretty much everything in our advertising industry today tells us you can be the boss and I'm the one who will help you be. Do you ever watch HGTV? All those house hunter shows? Like Love It or Listed or The Property Brothers or those sorts of things that are out. They're really popular and as far as mindless entertainment goes, it's probably pretty safe, right? I mean, you're not seeing anything terrible. But of course, what is it telling you? It's selling you. It's saying, you know, here's a couple who is interested and here's my enormous list of demands, right? And so you're giving it to your renovator and you're giving it to your real estate agent. You have to choose and love it or list it. Do I like the renovations? Do I want a new house? Well, they, they get the house they want or they get the renovations and everybody's happily ever after. You get what you want. The customer's right. Or today, of course, we live uh, now in the run-up to an election. We're all overjoyed to hear uh, people attacking each other, I'm sure. But of course, we live in a democracy and we recognize that one thing we have that ancient people didn't have they had kings and, and lords, and, and you had to kind of do what you're told. But for us, we're supposed to have representative democracy. So just a, a few months ago, Lisa McLeod is our MPP. So she presents us in, uh, represents us in Ontario Parliament. And I was over at the Legion having a beverage, and she was there. And so I know from experience that women in bars just love it when a man comes over to explain the world to them, right? <laughs> So I thought I'll muster up my courage or screw my courage to the sticking place and go and have a chat with her because we had been noticing a lot of the placards about people protesting government's policy and autism and I spoke with her a bit about it. What do your politicians always say when you corner them? Oh, your concerns are super important. I'll absolutely take those into consideration. It's really, really important because uh, I love hearing from my constituents. Fantastic, right? We all are told you, you're the boss. You're the one. It's ruled by the people. In fact, even going somewhere more intimate, you know, nowadays, uh, too, if you, you think, you know what, I really need a soulmate. If you were living 300 years ago in a village of a couple hundred people, you look around and you think, well, I got, I got three people to choose from, right? <laughs> Hope one of them's my soulmate. Now you have a phone in your pocket and you can pull up an app and you can swipe through 3,000 people. Swipe left, oh, um, he's not swipe, oh, you know, she's got the wrong eye color. Swipe, uh, they don't make enough money, or swipe, they don't have the right interests, or swipe, they're cat people, forget that. Keep moving, 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 3,000 later, oh, she's the one, right? Swipe right, clearly, there's my soulmate, I found the perfect match for me. We get this constant illusion, we're in absolute control, we have the right to be in control. But it does not take long if we're honest with ourselves and we look at our situation to realize that that is actually an illusion. You know, I'm happy with my house. I like it very much. But every five years, my bank helpfully sends me a little note saying, hey, by the way, we own that house. And hey, we agreed to uh, this interest rate and this amount of payment. Well, we've changed the terms now and you're going to pay this. And good luck trying to complain to them about a change in your interest rate because they won't listen. Or representative democracy. How is it that you can speak on the campaign trail and that the constituents are so important and then nobody returns your calls the day after they're elected, right? And many times do the very opposite of what you just said. It's really important for you to do. And of course, when you're looking for the soulmate and you've swiped right, what's happened? 500 thirsty dudes have already messaged her, right? 
So good luck trying to reach your to, to the top of that pile because you're in competition. Just because you want her to be your soulmate does not mean she wants you to be her soulmate. So often we think we are, are told that we have autonomy, we can shape our own destiny, when in fact we are often simply the, 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 the objects in which things outside of our control shape us. So I'd like to suggest that for us to understand this passage and to recognize God's authority, it's first important for us to say to ourselves, and to honest with ourselves and say, it's not whether or not we'll be affected by outside forces. It's a question of which forces will have the most effect on us. Not whether, but which one. We are looking here at this passage in which God is saying to you, am I not the potter? Did I not make you? Do I not have the right to shape you according to what I want? Here's the question we need to ask ourselves before this passage makes any sense and speaks to our lives. Are we willing to say, yeah, you know what? You're right. You did make me. I didn't choose to be born. I don't choose to breathe. I breathe because your spirit lives within me. I am who I am because you made me, and I have a recognition that you have the authority over me. You are the Lord. It requires us humbling ourselves and making a countercultural choice to say, I am okay and in fact joyful at the fact that I am not the master of my own fate. Here's the second thing. And I think it's a challenge, but it's also something that has a little bit more obvious hope to it. One of the things that's really interesting about this passage, if you look at it more closely, it's a tough passage, as I said. You shape in clay, squishing it up, and that can't be very pleasant. Did you notice something? He says, there the potter was working on his wheel. The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel that seemed good to him. You notice what he didn't do? He didn't say, this clay sucks, and throws it away. <laughs> took the same clay, and instead of throwing it away, instead of destroying it, reshapes it so it fits the purpose better. Now that's really important for us to hold on to. It was hard for Israel to believe, it's hard for us to believe, but to recognize that the shaping God is doing, the shaping that the potter is doing, is not so that this pot will get hurt, it's not so this pot will be destroyed, it's so that this pot will be fit for its purpose. Think about the obvious thing. You're there in a potter's house uh, and you're noticing he's working the wheel and he notices he's making a water jug and there's a giant hole in the bottom. That will not carry much water and if he puts it in the kiln and fires it up, you've got a pot that can't be used for its purpose. So instead of doing that as an act of grace to make this pot right, he reshapes it while he still can, but it's still pliable, and then puts it in the kiln and uses it for many years afterwards. Live in a world where so many people, I think, suffer because they feel meaningless in life. They feel they don't have much purpose in life. What is God doing when he exerts his pressure on this clay? He's trying to reshape it so that it fits its purpose. And that, in the end, is what brings true fulfillment. Now, that can be really, really painful. We know very well that God's pressure, or the pressure of things to change us, can be really a hurtful process in a lot of ways. Now, sometimes if you look at yourself and you sort of look about times where you recognize a change needs to be made, it's not all that difficult. Maybe you find you're spending too much money on caramel macchiatos or something, right? So you sort of dial it back and you're able, instead of going to Starbucks three, four times a week, you go once a week, kind of hold onto the steering wheel a little tight as you drive past and, and fine. But be honest about the things that really trouble you. Have you ever been in a place where you really recognize, man, there's something seriously wrong? you know, about my eating habits, my drinking habits, my relationship habits, whatever it is, what do you usually do in those kinds of situations that are really wrong and really tough and deeply ingrained? You try to change them, and then you keep slipping back. And so what do you end up doing? 
Either you go to live in la-la land and pretend it doesn't exist and ignore it and live in denial, or oftentimes you simply fall into despair because you think, man, this is wrong and I don't like it and there's nothing I can do about it. You know, oftentimes those are actually the times in which real change can start. When you recognize you can't change it yourself. If you ever pay attention to 12-step programs like AA or Al-Anon or, or NA, those sorts of things, one of the things that they'll often say, one of the sayings that, that's really, I think, has a lot of weight to it is, sometimes you have to hit the bottom before you start coming up. Many times when you speak to a person who's in recovery, who's successfully gone years without using this drug that they used to be addicted to, they'll tell you, you know, I, I, I needed to change, I knew I needed to change, I couldn't change until something smacked me so hard I couldn't live with where I was anymore. Maybe my wife left me. Maybe I lost my job. Maybe I got a DUI and got uh, spending some time in prison. Something like that that really shakes you up and makes you realize, I just cannot live this way anymore. And that, as hard and painful as it is, is often the moment of recognition where you actually start saying, okay, I'm ready to change. Now, we look at that and we can start to say, well, that's addiction. But in fact, that's often true for many aspects of our life. You think about the small things that God maybe is putting his pressure on you and saying, you know, you're spending too much money on frivolous things or you're doing one thing or another. Those are small, gentle ways that God shapes you as a clay pot. But there are other times, things that are really deeply ingrained, maybe even beyond our will, and sometimes instead of that clay pot being easily shaped, we find that that clay pot has gotten really brittle. And so the potter is pushing and it's pushing back and the potter is pushing and it's pushing back until what happens? Till finally that clay pot has to have so much pressure put on it that it gets squished and completely remade. There are times where we are deeply ingrained in one way of life that is not helping us fulfill our purpose, our God-given purpose. And I think that there are times like that where God has to express such pressure to remake us that he shakes up our foundations and really, really we find a difficult time with it. So what's the challenge in that? The challenge is to say, I believe that the change you want to bring in me, God, is for my good, even though it hurts right now. Because, man, when you hit that wall, what you're probably tempted to do is to say, it's your fault. You're not supporting me enough. Or it's, it's a bad set of cards I got, and woe is me. Instead of saying, look, here's an opportunity to finally break up this log jam. God, shape me. Use me. I trust that this is painful, but you want what's best for me. This is an encouragement for us to say, God, I know that there are things that need to change. Sometimes there are things I don't even know myself. But I trust that you love me, and you want to change me for the better, and so go at it. It's an encouragement for us to say, God, I trust in your goodness, and so when you need to change me, change me. Here's the last thing, and I think maybe it's the most uh, encouraging part of all of this. As hard as this language is, I'm going to read it to you again, but there's an important implication that comes from it. God says this uh, in uh, verse 7. At one moment, I may declare concerning a nation or kingdom, I will pluck it up and break it down and destroy it. But if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intend to bring on it. So far, this image of a potter and clay, a clay just sits there. It is literally a lump. Right? And you might tend to think to yourself, well, I'm a lump in God's hands, a passive lump. But God changes the imagery here and says, well, in fact, a nation that's going far, far away can actually do something about the change I bring about. It can say yes to that change, repent of its wrongdoing, and I can change it for the better. And I think that speaks to us an encouraging message, which comes to say it does not have to be that God squishes us <laughs> before we change. In fact, we have a role in making our hearts pliable and shapeable like a soft clay 
instead of a brittle and hard pot. You think about a, a soft clay can still be moved gently by the potter. It doesn't have to imply great force, but man, when it's been in the kiln and he wants it to change, he's got to smash it up with a hammer, grind it into dust, mix it with water, and start all over. And believe me, a shattered pot has got to be a painful thing for the pot. One of the things God encourages, I think, in this is to say, God, not only do you have the right, not only do I believe that you're good and want what's right, I also want you to show me ways that I can be more pliable and be more responsive to your spirit. I think there's a few ways that we can do this. I'm sure there's many more, but I'll give you a few suggestions. One of them is an act of prayer life. Prayer, of course, oh, wow, what a surprise. The preacher says you should pray more. One of the things about prayer that's really important is not just here's my laundry list, God, but carving out times in your life where you can be quiet and listen to what God may want to say to you. You know, prayer is important to speak, to share with God the things that are there, and it's an important part of prayer. Like, God, this is who I really am. I really bring myself, and that's an important part of how God can make you pliable if you're honest with God. One of the reasons we put that line about moral honesty in our church mission statement is not like, oh, you always have to be moral. I mean, it's a good thing, but we aren't all. So the honesty to look to God and say, look, there's things inside of me and I'm not always happy about here it is. Do what you want with it. But oftentimes, of course, even things that we are unaware of. So we go out for walks where we just say, I'm going to let my mind wander. And if you want to say something, make some impression to me, God, go ahead and do it. Or, for example, to, to uh, you know, pray in such a way that you're, you're, you're reading the scripture and sort of think, well, what does that mean? What is it saying to me? One of the things scripture does for us is not just, again, the memory passages. It's also to say, what are you saying to me? I, I want to know because I want my heart to respond to the gentle movement of the potter and not wait for the potter to come with a hammer. Another really important thing is you surround yourself with people who can speak the truth to you. And it's really difficult when you surround yourself with people that are only uh, shallow, you only ever talk about the weather, where you only surround yourself with people who always agree with you, always say what you want them to hear, surround yourself with yes men, but then what do you end up like? The naked emperor who thinks he has clothes but doesn't. Do you have friends, particularly friends in the community of faith, that can speak to you and, and give permission to say, if God wants to tell me something I'm not listening to, do I have people who can share it? To tell me when my behavior is hurting other people, to tell me when I'm on the wrong track, to be able to also encourage me in the right direction. One important way God speaks to us is through others. And then lastly to say, again, no surprise, come to church. And a church is geared, yes, we, we enjoy it. It's supposed to be pleasant for you. But it's also geared towards helping us listen to what God has to say. You hear the Bible read. You hear a person preach. You receive the sacraments where God gives us, uh, Jesus gives us his body and blood. We hear music that touches our souls. These are all things meant to allow God to open up our hearts and to kind of allow us to hear him. Something as simple as making a discipline of making church a priority and also making a discipline of coming to church, having spent just a moment of silence, Say, God, prepare my heart to receive what you're going to give me today. That allows us to be shaped more and more according to God's purpose and know that when we're fit for God's purpose is when we're most satisfied. Because we're made for a purpose. And when we live out that purpose, we realize more easily how much our lives are worth and how great an agent for God's change we can be in this world. So take Jeremiah. Yes, it's difficult. Take a few things out of it today. First, Come to the difficult acknowledgement that God has the right and the power to shape your life as he sees fit. Second, come to the recognition that God wants what's best for us and the reshaping he does is because he wants us to grow and flourish. And finally to say, to recognize 
that we have an opportunity to grasp the tools God gives us, God's own grace, to allow his grace to be more operative in our lives, to make our hearts more pliable, more soft, so that God can do the work he needs to do in a gentle way and not have to yell at us. For if we keep ignoring God's whispers, eventually he's going to raise his voice. Learn to hear God's whisper, and you'll find that you change, yes, gradually, sometimes achingly slowly, but change more and more each day into the image of what God wants you to be.